This podcast is presented to you by Fuller Seminary. Now available, the Fuller Leadership Scholarship for students who begin the Certificate of Christian Studies in spring of 2019 or summer of 2019. This new scholarship will cover up to 100% of certificate's tuition cost for select students and is designated for ministry and marketplace leaders looking for new ways to impact their congregation, community, and calling. Take courses in the areas like missional churches and leadership, Christian ethics, dynamics of power and gender in Christian leadership. For more information, visit fuller.edu backslash leadership scholarship. This is the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship's Conversations. We are bringing you stories from across the fellowship through interviews with people doing groundbreaking work and renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and innovation from ministers, authors, and practitioners from across the fellowship and beyond. This is Andy Hale. This week's conversation is brought to you by Smith & Helwes Publishing. Smith & Helwes provides books, studies, and commentaries for preachers, laypeople, and questioning Christians alike. With books like Preaching Punchlines, The Ten Commandments of Comedy by Susan Sparks, A Rabbi and a Preacher Go to a Pride Parade by Burt Montgomery, Gaining a Heart of Wisdom by Barry Jones, and The Sun is Up, One Minister's Awakening to Racial Reconciliation by Martha Dixon Curse, you are bound to find what you're looking for. Visit us at hellwis.com, that's hellwis.com, and use the code PODCAST at checkout to receive 10% off your order through June the 30th. And now, on to our conversation. Our guest for this week's conversation is Susan Sparks. Susan is a comedian, a lawyer, senior pastor, and author. Susan, thank you for joining the conversation. Thanks, Andy. Great to be here. Now, you've got a quite an interesting resume, uh, which tells me you have a very <laughs> fascinating story. So tell us a little bit more about you. Well, I, yeah, I don't, I don't come to the table with the, uh, the classic minister story. I, I started out as a trial lawyer uh, and ended up uh, changing careers after about 10 years into a professional stand-up comedian and an ordained minister, which, you know, it's a pretty hard U-turn. But, you know, if when you look at the whole arc of my life, it's almost, it's a real, it's a homecoming, really, for me. Um, I grew up in the Southern Baptist Church down in Charlotte, North Carolina, and at a very young age was told that, you know, women can't be ordained. That was not part of the theology. And at that juncture, when I was about six or seven, I really thought I wanted to be a preacher. You know, I remember putting my stuffed animals in the corner and making up sermons, you know, for the next day on Saturday night based on the Sunday school lesson. And it was, it was just as clear as day to me that that's what I love to do and I wanted to do. And, you know, to get told that that is something that you can't do because you're a girl at such a young age was, um, it was a real powerful, not really a slap in the face, but it was just a powerful wall dropped in my way. And, at six, you don't really think about arguing the theology around it. You just take the, the lesson and move on. So somewhere along the way between six and around junior high or high school, I thought, all right, well, this is what I'm good at. This is the skill set. I can't be a preacher. Oh, I'll be a trial lawyer because it's the exact same job. It's just different clients, really, when you think about it. So that's where I ended up. And, you know, over the years, slowly but surely, that call just sat there and sat there and kept percolating kept percolating. Um, and there was also a creative side to me that was not really being engaged uh, while I was as while I was in the law. 
And so that started coming out. I started singing country music. I started, you know, going out and doing theater. And the next thing you know, I'm studying stand up, which is the thing that really hit home with me. And I found my little class clown deep down to be very fed by that. So I, I ended up studying stand up, going out in the clubs and doing it. And the next thing you know, I found that the call came back with that. It was almost like one door open, the next door open, the next door open, and then the floodgates just opened. And, and I realized I really needed to claim that, reclaim that. Of course, it wasn't clear how that was going to happen. I, here I was a comedian and a lawyer. What you know, does <laughs> that fit in the church? But, you know, long story short, I took some time off. I thought about it. I figured it out and I just took some time to listen. And I found myself back in seminary, in Union Seminary, and uh, bringing in the stand-up into the church, kicking and screaming. So, you know, here I am, just in the most blessed place of having uh, a church that honors who I am and what I do, and bring, being able to bring the gifts that I have, the very unique slash wacky gifts that God gave me, but bringing them in a way that um, tends to heal and lift people up and, and allow them to walk out of church or walk out of, uh, you know, wherever they are a little stronger and a little straighter. So I feel very lucky. You, you said the combination of, of lawyer and pastor go hand in hand. I I think for a lot of <laughs> ministers I've met, maybe, a a, a judge uh, or prosecutor might go hand in hand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true. You know, the, the funny thing is, is we've, uh, we've had a lot of contract issues, property issues, some litigation uh, with outside contractors in the church. And it, of course, appears on my desk because they're like, oh, you're a litigator. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not here. I've got a sermon to write. <laughs> but it, there is a, a business aspect to the church that I think Sometimes people ignore or just don't like to think about, you know, like think of churches as this kind of holy, you know, uh, holy of holies, the temple. It, it's a business, you know, it's the temple, but you got to turn the lights on. So I, there is there is a power in having a business background, knowing a little bit about contracts, knowing a little bit about how to shift into Rottweiler mode outside of pastor when you're dealing with outside folks that are being a bit unfair and unjust to the church. So it's been helpful that way. Um, and the irony is, Andy, that not just lawyer and preacher are similar, but the comedian side and preacher is quite similar, I found, because both jobs, whether you're a comedian or a preacher, both jobs are all about standing in solidarity with people, you know, through the dumb things that happen every day, you know, the silly things that we laugh about, but also in the times of tragedy and when the job is done right, you know, people just feel a little less alone. Comedians make people laugh in it. Preachers uh, lift people up, uh, offer spiritual messages that bond them. And it, both jobs are the same because they make people feel less alone. So when you think about it, when you kind of unpack both jobs, it actually makes sense. Of course, when I tell people what I do, I just get hysterical laughter and a look of shock. But, but when you unpack it, it actually makes a little bit of sense. Hmm. I think uh, sometimes reading some parts of the Old Testament can feel like reading a bunch of legal papers anyways. <laughs> there's that. And there's also, if you read parts of the Old Testament and the Hebrew Bible, it's like comedy. You know, like my favorite story in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 9, I'll pause as everyone goes to get their Bible. Okay, good. It's that great story of where God strikes the Philistines with hemorrhoids. I mean, you know, you can't make that stuff up. And here, yet here it is. And it's, it's literally a bunch of folk walking around with hemorrhoids because God got mad because they were worshiping idols. 
you know, that's just, I'm sorry, that's stand up at its best. And we don't always see that aspect of the Bible. We see the kind of harsh, as you said, the legalese and the the kind of harsh sides. But I think there's also some humor, especially with Jesus, the way he crafted and pitched messages as well. Mm. If we're going to stay in that book, you need to stay for Samuel chapter 24, where it says that Saul went in the cave to relieve himself. It's one of those passages <laughs> when you read it, you're like, wait, is that what I think it means? Yes, that's what it, that's what it means. And that's the last thing you expect in the Bible is potty humor. But uh, yeah. So, so how, does a, how does a girl in North Carolina end up in, uh, in New York City? A bad map, Andy. That is how I ended up here. Oh. Yeah, I, I actually came up here because uh, when I was practicing law, I was working in Atlanta uh, in-house for Citibank towards the end of my legal career. And I reported to a boss up here in Manhattan, and he offered me a position to come up here. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I feel like we're family here. I'll just tell you, I was going through a really difficult time in my personal life. I had gone through uh, a, a divorce, and I was really kind of raw on the outs- outside of that. And Atlanta, you know, big as it is, is kind of a small town in a way. And I just, I was really, we were young and we were the first ones to have gone through it. And all of a sudden I had this opportunity to move to New York City and start anew. I can't tell you how, I mean, I don't even think my boss got out. Would you like to move to, I don't think he got York out. He got, would you like to move to New York? Ah, Yes, 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 I would. And it was an opportunity for me just to come and start over. And Plus, I'd always wanted to experience a new place and come up here, but um, there was a personal side of it that, you know, perhaps people listening can understand. You hit a hard point in life, and sometimes you just need a clean slate to start over and go somewhere. So I came up here and worked at Citibank for a while. Um, Then some changes in the legal business happened, and, you know, within a couple of years, that's when that transition happened, and I took some time off and headed to seminary. But it was a great moment, and there's, there's something very healing about a fresh start. So walk us through the day in the life of a senior pastor who's also a comedian, also an all your author and motorcycle junkie. <laughs> well, yes, goodness. Uh, there is no one standard day, as you can well imagine. Um, I will, I'll just think of random things that usually happen each day. I, you know, it's New York City. So you've got to have a little breakfast. We actually live next door. The church owns a hotel. It was a big freestanding cathedral. It was built in 1848, somewhere around the Depression. The trustees tore it down, which you've got to love that kind of courage, and built a hotel, a commercial building on the spot, and recreated the sanctuary inside of it. So at this juncture, we're getting lease money off the hotel, um, which is unbelievable. That's how we stay afloat. And the parsonage is in the hotel. So I wake up in the morning, I have some breakfast, I get on the elevator with German tourists that I don't know, which is great, love that, and come downstairs, walk five feet, come into the church. Um, I have a fake fireplace in my office because my husband and I are both are very outdoors oriented, and there are no windows that look out at sky or trees in this church or in our apartment. So that's a very hard thing. So I turn on the fake fireplace. And there may be a, a person in the congregation. I have a gentleman that comes in once a week that is um, dealing with uh, issues of race and discrimination and also uh, also struggling with just how you interact day to day. He has uh, worked himself out of being homeless and through 
some drug addiction. And so we meet once a week just to talk about life and what's going on with him and how, you know, how we can support him. And then there's probably, um, I've got an, a syndicated column that I write. So the, you know, the column goes up once a week that I've got to make sure that's up. And then there's a sermon that needs to be looked at and considered. So I'm always reading, looking for things that I can put in there. Uh, then at some point in time, there might be a property issue that we've got the hotel has an issue or there's a contract or there's some type of developer that wants to come in and do you know X, Y, and Z. Then we've probably got some type of lunch that I'll be going somewhere in the city. Uh, it may be religious oriented for our denomination or, you know, who knows, it could be um, a gathering of artists or comedians or writers that I work with here just to get a different fresh take. Yeah, probably more meetings with congregation members, a little bit more writing. Uh, usually there's more meetings with somebody that uh, might engage the church from a business standpoint. And then at night, I pray that I go home to my beloved husband, who is a fabulous chef, and have some beautiful dinner that uh, might include mac and cheese or tuna noodle casserole, who are, which are my two favorites. And, um, you know, a, a really quiet night with like Game of Thrones. So that's, that's not an average day, but that's a kind of amalgamation of a lot of stuff that might be happening here. Mm. I'm still a little upset about Sunday's episode, so we won't go back to the Game of Thrones piece here. But I'm actually questions. thrilled about it. But yeah, we could talk <laughs> offline about that. <laughs> no spoilers, even though this will be coming out. Okay. Good. Okay. Right. All right. So two important kind of uh, you centric questions. Number one, did you marry your husband because he looks like the composer John Williams? Um, and number two, uh, Mets or Yankees? Okay. I have e- easy. Number two is Mets. For oh, sure. Thank God we okay. can be friends. Uh, you know, gonna ha- yeah, okay, we're going to look for new friends. And also, if I've, I've already lost probably half of your listeners right now. Come back. Wait, y'all come back. But Matt, long time. Um, and I married my husband because he is uh, the person that makes me laugh more than anybody on the face of this earth. And he's a Harley rider. And he plays guitar and is a musician. And he can do the New York Times puzzle in under 30 minutes. And he has read more books than anybody I've ever met in my life. And he looks like kind of a cross between Ruald Amundsen, the Norwegian explorer, and I would say Clark Gable. So, yeah, you know, there's a lot of stuff that rolled into it. But well, I just gave yeah, you one more. the top things. I, f- I figured you married him for other reasons besides that. But <laughs> yeah. And if my if our audience leaves because they're Yankees fans, then they could just go ahead and go on. Because I don't I'm not really interested in bandwagon people. I'm a lifelong Mets fan. <laughs> My first little league team was nice. the Mets and I've, I've stayed addicted since. And every oh, year right on. I, I have a wonderful, extraordinary April. And then I remember in May, oh yeah, I pull for the New York Mets and they just go back to being the Mets. It's bad. I know. Well, Toby actually uh, went, I sent him as a birthday present a long time ago, back when I was a lawyer and actually pulling down a pretty decent check, sent him to Mets fantasy camp. And wow. Did he have fun? And a lot of those players, those ex uh, big league players, are in, you know, obviously based in New York. And we've had a couple come preach here. And um, one guy named Ed Charles, who was on the 69 Mets, who was one of the first African American players in the National League. And oh, we had the best time. So, yeah, listen, I live in a baseball household. So come visit anytime. I'll have to take you up on that invitation. So uh, you've got a, a, a new book coming out. Preaching Punchlines, the Ten Commandments of Comedy. You wrote, our places of worship have gotten too caught up in self-importance and solemnity. The idea that we have to be serious in the church, to be serious about church, we can't 
encourage people to laugh in church? This might be like a uh, very obvious question considering that you're a comedian and a pastor, but what was going on in your journey that you needed to write about humor in the church? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think a lot of it, as most of us are driven by our um, our background and our childhood, a lot of it was my experience growing up uh, in my childhood church, which was very serious, uh, very stoic, uh, scary as a child, and one that um, was quite judgmental and kind of uh, Hebrew Bible, Old Testament off the chain. And I, uh, as a as a natural comedian, just a little kid that loved to laugh and play and clown and then kind of manifested that into an organized skill set that I ended up using in comedy clubs and then studying and then bringing it into seminary, found over the time that I thought, well, that's a gift that I have. Where is that welcome in the church? And then once I started thinking through that, I realized this is a global human gift that the church in many instances has forced us to check at the door, like we check our coats. And, you know, how can you bring all of who you are to God when you have to check half of who you are at the door? You know, this idea that we can't laugh or feel joy, um, you you can't be healed by God unless you give God all the pieces. And that means the shame, that means the tears, that means the laughter and the joy and everything in between. And so that's, that's what all of a sudden theologically gave me the idea that this needs to really be looked at in a much deeper way, which led me to write a thesis at Union Seminary, not only laughter in world religious traditions, but how over time the church has, has, has locked laughter out, especially from the Middle Ages on, and especially from when Constantine kind of made it the ruling religion. It's like we went from becoming from being the jester to the king. You know, we were the we were the underdog, and all of a sudden, when you are you get power, humor is not welcome. Humor and power don't they, they don't go. They're not they're not good friends. They don't walk around holding hands. Th- humor threatens power, and so there's an interesting uh, I think analysis to be done of humor and power in the church and where it's welcome and where it's not. And so I enjoyed doing that. And then you look at it from a practical standpoint of what does it bring as a rhetorical tool. You know, it brings intimacy and honesty and trust. And as a preacher, that's an important thing to be able to offer a congregation, especially in my context, where I have a ton of young people coming in the door, interestingly, back to a Baptist church who have been turned away or alienated or even damaged by a Baptist church somewhere else. And so I need to bring, it's almost like the prodigal son returning home. I need to give them a personal welcome that is genuine and authentic that gives them trust. So humor and a smile and a lightness to the touch of the message in the beginning is critical. You can see their shoulders drop. You can see them relax and think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to hear her out. And so, you know, there's the historical perspective, there's the theological perspective, and then there's just the straight rhetorical perspective of what does it do to engage people in a congregation? What does it do to allow us intimacy with God and and what are we missing when we don't have it? And so that was that was the journey that I went on from just my own personal, I guess, pain to doing the research and understanding how this would heal others. And in fact, I believe transform the face of the church. That's really our I think that's the goal here we have at Madison Avenue Baptist is to take the church out of an image of judgment and shame and put it as an image of hope and joy. 
And for a long time, the folks that have had the mic have been giving a judgment and shame message, and we are trying to take that back. So yeah, that's, that's my journey, and that's our goal. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health. At the Center, we believe God has called and empowered congregations to change the world. For 25 years, Center consultants, coaches, and educators have been supporting congregations, clergy, and lay leaders as they meet the ongoing challenges of congregational life, including training ministers to manage transition, helping congregations work through polarizing conflict, coaching clergy to discover and utilize their gifts for ministry, and assisting congregations in discerning God's call to future missions and ministry. Center consultants and coaches don't dispense expert advice. Instead, they recognize the uniqueness of each congregation and work to create the space needed for God's people to discern and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. Please visit our website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about the center and find the help you need in order to thrive in missions and ministry. Well, it just shows the kind of comedian you're in. You'd have to rib on me for mispronouncing solemnity and the nerve nervousness of trying to read a quote from you. And and did you hear me say anything? I was like, oh, wow, that's that's impressive. I didn't even know what that word was. I had to look it up while we were talking. (laughs) It's like, well, you've got a vocabulary. (laughs) <laughs> it is it is in the book but um we'll, we'll credit you for it but uh did i misspell it in the book no 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 i oh, i miss no oh. no no i totally mispronounced the word when we were saying earlier you know and and, oh, and by the way to our listeners no we're not going to cut this out just so you can see how this <laughs> That's the the best part of the whole thing. so let's go, let's go back to the scary and, and fear-driven image of, of god in the church do you do you have any honest confessions of fears that you had of god that you might want to share with us uh, Confessions of fears of God. Yeah, and it, it, you know, like yeah. this, this, okay. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the the first one is pretty clear. If you got if you worship a God that can strike people with hemorrhoids, boom, there's a fear. So we've we've called that out. But you know, recently I was preaching about um, there was a, somebody had asked in our congregation, "What are your first memories of God?" Which I thought was such a provocative question, and I worked it into a sermon. And I remember as a little child laying in the pew of this big old like gigantic church down in downtown Charlotte with you know the mahogany and the stained glass and blah 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 and and our pew because everyone sits in the same pew every time every Sunday we had the same pew and I would lay there and look up at the sunlight coming in and I have these images I remember of like being scared of what I saw because there was no smiling there were no smiling biblical figures it was either Jesus with this flat kind of look on his face holding a lamb that looked terrified or there was like one of there was a sea parted and and people like running with fear in their face and God kind of coming out of a cloud with a lightning bolt that kind of stuff and I, I grew up with as a little child with an image of if you mess up honey you gonna get smoked or whatever the word is, speaking of pronunciation, I don't even know, smoted. I don't even know what you'd say. But it, I, the, the power of stained glass and just light and images and what you see as in, in a young mind. And so that's what I remember about the fear factors. Kind of, it was, I didn't so much hear the messages, but I saw them. They were right there every Sunday for me. So it's hard not to have that sink in and become part of an organic understanding of God. And it takes a long time to unpack that. You know, I probably still today still unpacking it in some ways. Maybe it's a lifetime journey of doing that. But Mm. um, yeah, I think, you know, I've crossed the threshold where the 
for for I the God I know and pray to, I feel you know the comfort and the love and the intimacy and the safety. But there's always in the back of my mind that that God's got the lightning bolt. That I you know there's always you got to be a little careful. And I I think that probably will stick with me forever. So I, I have a, a little bit of a different like fear of God growing up. Uh, it came by way of of my father. <laughs> so. Um, I was a troublesome child in church and could never sit still. No, stop uh, it. Yes, which I think is common for most good, good preachers. You know, I mean, you just, <laughs> um, but so I always got the uh, hand on the back of the neck and the really hot <laughs> breath in your ear. That that that's what scared the bejesus out of me. And so from from childhood, I always imagine that God had really hot breath. And when you did something wrong, <laughs> God was going to speak that hot breath into your ear, which is like the worst possible scenario for me. So, so that's out there. I'm and laughing I'm and I'm not laughing at your people. pain, Andy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, please. But that's so visceral. That image is so visceral. Wow. I love that. But I'm sorry. My friends in CBF life, uh, the next time they see me probably at general assembly, they're all going to try to come up and put hot breath on my ear. Or back. <laughs> Uh, that's great well at least i mean i don't know i might be getting a a, a lamb that looks scared so how about that <laughs> it's so, a terrified uh, lamb you wrote uh there's there's some striking parallels between the formulas of writing for stand-up and writing for sermons take us a little deeper there um well i there's there's a number of things i think i hit in the book that to talk about that but one of the things i talked about was um in comedy, there's such a, a real basic formula they call the the, the the comedic threes or the comedy threes, and it's literally setting up a punchline, which is usually in its most basic form three things: you make a statement or you set you know one particular image, then you give another one, which sets the pattern because they're parallel, and the third one comes in and breaks the pattern. So, for example, somebody at some point in time, or maybe I wrote this, I can't remember, but I said you know. Uh, the diversity of creation is just wonderful. You know, think about it. There's um, heaven and earth. That's number one, set the pattern, right? Second thing, there's platypus and blowfish. You know, again, expected, set the pattern. Two that are similar. And then the third one was, and Jerry Springer and Jerry Falwell, which is completely different, unexpected. It breaks the pattern and it's, um, you know, there's kind of a, a heady, a uh, little uh, scientific theory called the incongruity theory that means this is why we laugh. It's the ah, moment, the aha, the unexpected moment, which makes you laugh. So in comedic threes, you give two things that parallel, the third one breaks the pattern. And so I talked about that in terms of how you, you can set up sermons, um, how you set up messages. Um, and the, the, the lesson being the punchline falls at the end. So maybe it's just sentence structure. You know, there's so many times we'll write a sentence and yet bury it with unimportant material and people miss the punchline because it's not highlighted. Maybe it means it's at the end or maybe you take out words like, you know, really and very and all the extraneous words that take away from the punch of the message you're trying to get. Maybe it's literally in how you structure your sermon. Some people are deductive preachers. Some people are inductive preachers. It doesn't mean that the punchline has to be at the end of the sermon, but it means it has to be clear and catch people so that they remember it. You know, and so many people break that break that rule, it, and it's easy to do, especially as a, a young comedian. You'll see, will get up behind the mic and they'll ruin the surprise by setting up the joke and say, "Oh wait, you're gonna love this. It's so funny." 
and then they'll launch it to it. Well, now everybody knows it's coming. So, you know, my, my message to uh, preachers and communicators in general in that particular section of that chapter was make sure that you leave a punchline as an unexpected surprise and put it in a place that will catch people. So the title of that section was punchline goes at the end, right? But it, it goes at the end to punch it out. It goes at the, in a section of the paragraph of the sentence or the message itself that punches it out that people will get. Because our whole goal is to get them to hear it, but not only hear it, remember it, and then go out and repeat it. So, you know, there, there's, a, there's a many other parallels in the way that you structure stand-up, but that's one of the most basic that I found that, that was helpful for me in how I structured sermons. Well, you said something earlier. I, I can't think of ever an instance in his past or his children's offsprings present of Jerry Falwell that would, you know, be possible any <laughs> fodder for, for any kind of joke. But uh, No, it's pretty flat. Yeah, yeah. not much. <laughs> well, it, it's it's fascinating time to be a pastor. Um, I can just yeah. hear our forebears laughing it up from, you know, beyond the grave. Yet this is a challenging time to speak prophetically about what we're seeing going around in the world. And you wrote something fascinating. You said, power is threatened by humor because it calls out reality. It shows things for what they are, and it equalizes yeah. the playing field. So how can yeah. humor help you speak truth into power? Well, I think there's just so many so many levels of that, Andy. You know, and I go through it in the book on a, on a number of different levels. I mean, one is just simply allowing people to talk about difficult topics. You know, for example, I have a multicultural congregation, about 40% people of color, uh, a large LGBT population. I have Russian, Ukraine, Hispanic. I have everything in a microcosm of 100 people sitting in those pews. And so we speak very openly and very clearly and very powerfully, I hope, about social justice issues and things that folks are dealing with. Sometimes if I go out and preach, the congregations are not diverse. They may well be um, economically uh, and uh, demographically different. For example, it'll be a very wealthy all-white congregation in a place that doesn't talk about race. I've had preachers that have hired me to come in and guest preach and say, we don't talk about issues that make people uncomfortable. Well, okay, that's just, that's not who I am. I will respect someone's way of coming at a congregation. But what I do is go in as a comedian and a storyteller. So the first two thirds of that sermon are kind of lighter, funny stories that make people, you know, think, engage, gives them some takeaways, but always at the end of those sermons, there's going to be some piece that's going to push them a little harder. And because they have laughed with each other and with me, there's a trust factor there. And so I could say things about race or about religion or about issues of um, things that you read about in the paper that otherwise might they might not be able to hear. And I think humor allows people to open up, to be a little bit more vulnerable, to trust and to hear messages that they couldn't otherwise hear. Um, I mean, I specifically love there was a story I shared in the book about speaking truth to power, and it was talking about um, it was from a children's book actually called White Flower. And it talked about a, uh, a KKK march that happened in Knoxville, Tennessee. And the people just got sick of the local, some of the local residents got sick of the Klan marching and just embarrassing them. And so all of a sudden a, a local troop of clowns, literally a troop of clowns showed up at the march and they called themselves the 
Ku Klutz, K, you know, K-L-U-X. Is that Klutz? No, how do you spell Klutz? K-L-U-T-Z. Let's talk about the, uh, embarrassing. I can't spell, but yeah, Klutz. You fall over yourself. Clue, Klutz, clan, clowns. And they literally got in there. And when the clan would yell white power, they would start laughing and go white flower. And they would take baking flour and throw all over the clansmen. And then there would be another phrase that they would throw out and they would turn it and do something else. And they would follow them and they followed them for blocks and blocks until the clan just out of utter embarrassment and frustration, just put their flags down and walked away. And it was memorialized in a children's book of all things called white flower. And it was a story, not only the, the, historical story of what happened, but the power of clowning, humor, laughter, and joy to undercut power in a way that is um, nonviolent. And almost, it's almost like a, a martial arts move where you, you know, you access the power of your opponent and you throw them off balance. And so there's just, and that's just two of about, I think, 10 examples that I give in that particular chapter of what humor can do to help not only speak power, truth to power, but also in our daily lives, help us deal with frustrating issues, difficulty in work situations, um, and allow congregations to p- be stretched and pushed and play into places that may be otherwise uncomfortable, but that, that we all together should go. Let's, let's talk about hecklers for a moment. There are uh, <laughs> two kinds of hecklers for pastors that they have to deal with. Uh, the ones that will corner you after worship or with an email on Monday and the ones inside <laughs> of our own heads. Um, so what advice would you give to our local church pastors about navigating hecklers? Yeah, everybody's got them. Number one, just know that you're not alone in that. Um, in the book, I actually talk about hecklers as um, the the folks that live in your head. And the examples that you gave are those kind of folks. They may be real at coffee hour or the emails later, but they get in your heads. And the problem with when you those voices sink in and become a voice in your head, it, it drives your behavior. I worked with somebody at a, in a consulting job years ago that talked about the three B's, believe, behave, become. So what you hear in your head, what you start to believe, that's how you behave. And over time, how you behave drives who you become. And I never, I never forgot that because I, we all have those voices in our head, those negative voices that say, you're not that great, or why did you write that sermon, or that was horrible, or that was a bad judgment call, or you're not all that, or you know, on and on and on. And when you let them in and you give them residence, then they can wreak havoc. And so I, I talk about my comedy teacher, Stephen Rosenfeld, the guy that I've, American Comedy Institute, I studied with for years said there were two ways to deal with hecklers, either ignore them or annihilate them. And I talk about each being, you know, two separate steps. First, you know, being, of course, the peace-loving minister that I am, let's go with ignore first. And, you know, ignoring for a heckler, you know, means don't listen to the voice in your head. Now, if this is a real person coming at you on Monday morning or a real person at coffee hour, then sometimes you have to put what we preach into effect. Like, you know, you look at the person and you realize you got to forgive because you don't know what, what angst and what damage and what pain is driving them to say those things. You know, when you come out of your own head and you look at what's driving people to do what they do, all of a sudden they become a little more human and they're a little easier to forgive. 
And I, and I think that's it's true as a speaker, too, a speaker, a preacher, whatever. When you put your focus on the audience as opposed to yourself, all of a sudden the heckler's voice goes down. Those negative voices go down and you focus on what's important, which is what you have to bring to them. So the, the ignore is really put the focus where it needs to be and, and stop listening to the overt voice and realize what's driving it. You know, and that's great. And that will work in many instances, but sometimes that's not enough. And that's when you have to go as a comedian, if you ignore the heckler and they keep coming at you, you've got to do what he calls annihilate them, which means in a comedy club, you stand absolutely just tall and strong and smack them with your best heckler restore responses. And then, then once the audience buys in, because they're not there to hear the heckler, they're going to cheer when you shut the heckler down. Then you give your best material. And you win the crowd. And I think that's true in life, too. You know, you just have to, sometimes you just have to stand strong in the face of folks that are negative and are trying to bring you down. And you harness the power of the crowd around you, which is the rest of the congregation. It's your families. It's your friends. It's the people that know how good you are, that believe in you. So you harness the power of the crowd around you. You stand firm in the face of the person that's come after you. And you hit them with your best, best material which means you get in that pulpit every week and you give your best sermons. And you don't think about, you don't worry about that person in the third row who just told you that it was bad. You look at the rest of the crowd, you know, loves you and wants that message and needs that message. And so I just think those messages were very important for me coming out of, as a stand-up because we all know there's always going to be a naysayer in every comedy club, in every church. But there's ways to deal with it. And 90% of it is dealing with our own mental approach to it and understanding that there's more than just that person. There's a crowd around us that wants to hear us, not them. And so that's, that was very helpful to me um, as a stand-up to translate that into ministry and, and remember the power that's with us. What was the, um, what was the most challenging aspect of writing this book? Trying to remember and make sure I included everything I've ever learned, which is so ridiculous. You know, I, I, I wrote it and then I would be writing and they're like, oh, I forgot that in chapter one. So I'd go back and put that in there. And then I'd be writing and oh, I forgot about that. What about this? Then I turned it into Smith and Hell West and I'm like, oh, I forgot this. And it finally dawned on me, you've never, you'll never get everything into this book. But it was important to me because so many times people will come up and you know, I may have guest preached or spoken and they, they say maybe something gracious and but they'll say, I, I'm, I wish, you know, I'd like to be, I'd like to be able to do more humor or offer more humor. I'm just not that funny. And time after time after time, I, I have talked people through, it's not about being a professional standup. It's being, it's about bringing the most authentic, open, honest version of yourself into the pulpit. And it dawned on me, I need to write down how I do what I do. Not in order to become a professional comedian, not to become me, God help us all, one is enough in this world, but a book that gives people, communicators, pastors permission to really be fully themselves in that pulpit, not who the congregation thinks they should be, not who the world thinks they should be, um, but the person that God made them, the gifts that God gave them, and to bring them on, full on, and to offer them. So I just felt a great responsibility to make sure that I, I just put everything I knew into it. And that was the hardest thing for me. It wasn't writing it. It was just feeling like I've got to drag everything out of my brain to make sure it's in the book. And I think I did, I got pretty close. I'm, you know, there's um, one thing I'm excited about is I'm going to 
offer an online kind of an e-course version of it starting in August, which will give me an opportunity to continue to add and continue the conversation and, you know, to, to add things that I learn every day after I turn the book in that it's new and interesting and exciting. Um, so I'm, yeah, I, that's what I struggle with, Andy. And I, I did the best I could. There it is. <laughs> well, since you did the best you could, what's your greatest hope for the book? Uh, my greatest hope for the book. What a great question. Um, it'll win the Pulitzer, um, you know, but if short of that, I, okay, I'm pausing for laughter. I was expecting to hear some. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, actually, yeah. okay. I was laughing. I put it, I put it on <laughs> when I ask you questions so that I can take notes on what you say. <laughs> so oh, okay, I was good, good. Okay. I was like, whoa. <laughs> okay. Good. Thank you. Um, you want me yeah, to be a not, heckler? <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to having like a, a laugh traffic track in the back, but oh, no, look, yeah, it's not going to win. Uh, my wife, uh, my wife is the uh, sympathetic laugher, laugher in my. Oh. <laughs> and so I, I told her, you know, instead of giving that sympathy laugh, she should just, you know, just start booing me from the back of the sanctuary to get a better response. But uh, yeah, you got you got to have those folks. Yeah. I mean, okay, so it, I think the Pulitzer might be a stretch, but um, honestly, I think it circles. My greatest hope for this book is is circling back to what I said in the beginning, which is I really hope that specifically pastors, because it's written specifically for pastors, but anyone who wants to elevate their communication skills um, and just, you know, bring bring more authenticity and effectiveness to how they communicate. My greatest hope for this book is that, that people will pick it up and read it and, and feel less alone in what they're doing, number one. Um, number two, feel affirmed in who they are and the gifts that they bring. And Perhaps most importantly, number three, see how um, their their role in life, whether they're a pastor or a religious leader or a communicator or a business person, whatever, see how what they have been given, their platform, can literally change the world um, through the words that they use. And that's what I hope for. I want people to be strengthened and inspired and, you know, close the book and go out and change the world. And so, a Pulitzer, but I, yeah, I think that yeah, I think the first three are probably a little more right. reasonable. Good to know you set the bar so low, uh, you know, for this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want to stay connected with Susan, you can follow her on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. I guess you could probably add in there Snapchat, MySpace, LinkedIn, and any anywhere else. And then you can also uh, visit her website, susansparks.com. You can pre-order Preaching Punchlines in the month of June or purchase a copy wherever books are sold in the month of July. Susan, thank you for inviting us to see humor and joy uh, in the journey of our faith together. And uh, especially, I'm just grateful that you've owned the fact um, to our national audience that you married your husband for his Clark Gable likeness. <laughs> Andy, thank you for giving me the platform and the audience to be able to make that confession. <laughs> <laughs> but most importantly, thank you for the just gracious time. I'm so excited to be able to share about the book and, and to be able to engage with your audience and, and blessings on what you do and the important podcast and, and communication that you offer all of us. Well, that's it. That's our episode. Be sure to check out our annual sponsors website, the Center for Congregational Health at healthychurch.org and Fuller Seminary at fuller.edu. 
For more information about the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship, including stories about our church starters, field personnel, leadership development, peer learning groups, and advocacy, visit cbf.net.